I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. With the daily headlines on Russia, the Nunes memos, Mueller indictments, Trump denials, the continual cable TV panels, it's easy to miss a powerful and, as it turns out, complicated question. How did Russia happen? How did we get here? For many of us, the so-called Russia story started in 2015 with Donald Trump. It continued with Paul Manafort and Carter Page and WikiLeaks and, of course, picked up steam with Internet bots and cyber war and what we now know is a continuing massive coordinated attack on our democracy, on our very way of life. But as with any major attack, these things don't just appear out of nowhere. Sometimes, like 9-11, the signs were there and once missed, create the opportunity for something much, much worse. So how did Russia occur? What happened during Trump's campaign and since, and how has all of that come together to put Trump and us in the situation, the divided democracy we all now face? That's the incredible roadmap and story put together by two of our country's leading investigative journalists, Michael Isikoff and David Korn, in their new book, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. You know them both. Michael and David are longtime award-winning reporters and analysts. Michael is chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, and previously he was an investigative correspondent for NBC as well as a staff writer for Newsweek and The Washington Post. Isikoff has written two bestsellers. David is the Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones Magazine, an MSNBC analyst, and author of three New York Times bestsellers. But before I begin this conversation with Michael and David that I think you're really going to like, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. We all saw the results from Pennsylvania 18 and Connor Lamb. Is that pending Democratic wave now underway? What's next on immigration, tariffs, and guns? And what's in store for the next stage of congressional map drawing? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. And one last item before we begin. My continued thanks to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and I'm really grateful. So if you like these conversations, you know my ask. I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, of course, my parallel ask, if you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Michael Isikoff and David Korn. Michael, David, thank you for joining me, uh, both of you. I appreciate your time. Great to be with you. So, Michael, I'll start with you, I guess. Um, this book, it made me sad and angry and frustrated, uh, a bunch of stuff I didn't really expect when I started reading it. Um, I'm uh, sad about uh, where we are now and, and because it took so long to get here, and I'm mad at uh, how long and how much has been going on for so long without it really becoming part of our national narrative. And I'm frustrated for all the obvious reasons that you guys lay out in your book. Um, is this how you meant for me to feel? Well, I, 
I got to say, what we wanted to do is just as best we can report what happened and put it into a single narrative uh, in which one, the reader, can make sense of what transpired in the 2016 election, what led up to it, and what the consequences are for the future. And it's not a pretty one uh, on, 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 on any in any way you look at it, um, you have uh, this these documented uh, longstanding efforts by Donald Trump uh, to basically ingratiate himself with the Kremlin so he can do uh, business deals in Moscow. You have ample warnings about what the Russians were up to. Uh, and uh, going back to 2014, when, as we reveal, there was a secret source inside the campaign, inside the Kremlin, telling a U.S. government official about Putin's plans for a massive cyber and information warfare campaign against Western democracies, including the United States. Yet the dots were never connected. The warnings were never taken as seriously as they should have been. And then you get to the 2016 election and you do have this, you know, exactly what was forecast, cyber attacks, information warfare dumping, and the U.S. government is bedeviled about what to do about it. Um, And, you know, the result is, and you have a presidential candidate who ultimately wins, who dismissed the whole thing. Uh, making it all the more difficult for the United States government to come up with a united response. And the result is a Vladimir Putin emboldened. And, you know, one can argue that it led to the events we've just seen over the last week in the United Kingdom, where an emboldened Putin and uh, uh, attempts the assassination of a former Russian intelligence agent on Russian soil. On British soil. On British soil, yeah. And as as you guys lay out, uh, you know, not the first time that that's been uh, tried, um, attempted, and and in previous cases um, has succeeded. Uh, On on this history and, you know, leading up to and even almost before we get to Trump, um, it it felt to me, David, and I don't know if this was was necessarily the goal – it felt almost like a ghost wars that the Steve Call book that explained how we got to 9/11 um, for Russia. I mean, it's it's hard to read the book, and maybe this is part of what was so frustrating for me, and also not feel that today's problems are also the result in differing ways. And and Michael just laid out, you know, obviously having um, now a, a president who is not uh, who's you know not really choosing to address any of it or much of it um, makes things, you know, m- much worse. But it's hard to feel read the book and also not feel that today's problems are, are the full result of years of, of wishful thinking and, and questionable decision-making by, you know, from the Clinton years, from the Bush years, and even in the uh, Obama administration. Uh, you know, Obama and Bush officials not wanting to take actions against Russia uh, because of other areas of focus like Iran and, and Syria. Yeah, so tell me about that. And, and uh, you know, my, my reading of the book is kind of a, a roadmap to how we got here. Well, we did want to explain how we reached the point in which, you know, America became a victim and sort of an unknowing victim at first of a major act of information warfare waged by Vladimir Putin, who, of course, by that point in time, 
there was no secret about the sort of man and sort of leader he was. But uh, as you note, the historical context and setup is quite important. And what we did, you know, it's not the bulk of the book, but we thought it was necessary to set the stage and look at how previous administrations and particularly the Obama administration had thought about Russian policy and how to deal, in some cases not deal, with Putin over the course of time. Um, Obama came into office and he wanted to have a, what he called a reset um, and try to establish better relations with the Russian government because, as you note, there were some top priorities in which he thought uh, Russian involvement could be quite useful in terms of counterterrorism, nuclear nonproliferation. He was very intent on trying to negotiate a nuclear arms deal. And also the U.S. military needed Russian help in the war in Afghanistan, particularly the, the, the ability to fly over Russian territory to supply our forces there. And the Obama administration did have some reason to believe things could improve because there was a new president at the time. It wasn't Vladimir Putin. It was Dmitry Medvedev. Medvedev. Yep, yep. And he, um, you know, seemed to be a different type. Now, of course, Putin had, you know, moved from the presidency to the to becoming prime minister on paper, a less powerful job in Russia, but truly uh, did have, you know, the power behind the throne. Uh, but the new guy was given some latitude, and there was progress. The U.S. did make uh, gains in, on, on arms control and military transshipments, and the Obama people did think that there was a way that this could work out. And it's hard to look back at that point in time and say that they should not have tried this. But the issue becomes, at what point do they realize that Putin is not truly gone from the scene, and that when he comes back um, in 2012, does he, you know, do they underestimate, in essence, his antipathy towards the West and his um, and the brazenness which he is willing to engage in secret warfare with the West? And I think the answer is yes. And I think in a lot of ways you can claim this is mostly an intelligence failure, just the way you mentioned 9/11 a moment ago. The 9-11 Commission, you know, their famous line was there was a failure of imagination. And I think in this instance, the U.S. intelligence community did not fully see what Putin was up to and missed, as Mike and I talk about in the book, and we give some very specific examples, uh, the signs and the evidence, the intelligence they had that Putin was actually planning a massive information warfare campaign to delegitimize democratic institutions in the West and the United States. That line that you just mentioned, and I've got it marked, it's, it's my next question. I, I got chills. Um, it was, uh, I've got it marked. It was page 290. And uh, you, quote the, <laughs> you, you quote the senior Obama official who called the Russian hacking, um, quote, a failure of intelligence and a failure of the imagination. And I was like, wait a minute, that's the exact line. I, I Googled it. And to your point, that's, that is the line from the 9-11 report. Uh, the most important failure was one of uh, one of imagination, um, and and uh, what else? You, you've got Clapper. You quoted. You know, it, it, it just it felt to me, and this is 
the part that I don't think – this is the part of the story that I, I don't think has been laid out as clearly as you guys do it in the first half of your book was the roadmap, the, the missed signals. And, 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 and you point out – David, you just pointed out. I mean the choices were not – they're not easy choices. You know, Do you care about um, stopping what's going on in Syria or do you care about pushing back on Putin? Do you care about getting flyover rights in Afghanistan or do you care about uh, you know, developing better internal relations – Within Russia, but that that the missing of the intelligence um, and and Michael, I'll go back to you and it, you know really came through and and I guess we, you know just to, to close out this part because then I want to ask you some more questions about uh, uh, Trump. Um, was that important to you guys in terms of really laying out this this roadmap? Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and look, it was an intelligence failure, but I think in retrospect, there, you know, one can argue and probably history will judge it was a policy failure as well because the commitment to the reset blinded the Obama White House to the dangers that were uh, lurking there behind the scenes. And, um, uh, and, and you know, one example, a 2012 election when Mitt Romney uh, warns that Russia is the primary geopolitical advocate of the United States, what's the reaction of the Obama White House? To ridicule it, to mock Romney as somebody who's, you know, trapped in the past, in the Cold War. Uh, and that was a way of deflecting from the very... Putin is back in power at that point. He is the, he is the new... Pre, he is returned as the president of Russia. Um, but um, the Obama folks did not want to in any way uh, uh, undermine what they thought was a foreign policy triumph, their, their reset. Um, and so therefore, they in some ways blinded themselves to uh, the intelligence that was there, to the warnings that were there about what Putin was up to. And so let's turn to uh, uh, Trump and the parallel story while this is going on, this, this outline that you've you know, laid out about uh, what's happened in the Bush years and the Obama years, parallel to that in a totally different sphere, you've got Donald Trump and, and this also wasn't – even though we've all seen it and heard the different stories, um, the power of the book for me is the, the tying it all together into a singular narrative – um, David, he was infatuated with Moscow he, for years, wasn't he? Uh, yes, and I'm really glad you picked up on this because, you know, the way that news gets covered these days, you get bits and pieces and sometimes really important stories intermittently, but, not, but certainly not in chronological order. And I think Mike and I found when we laid all out, a lot of things that might seem mysterious as we go along, the patterns become almost too obvious. And one is, you know, it's a good word to use, Trump's infatuation with Russia and then particularly with Putin. He'd been trying for three decades, practically, to have a big signature tower in Moscow. Yeah. He also had come, he also had gone. I mean, he had had, in, the, in previous years, 10, 15 years ago, announced he was doing these projects and then they would fall apart. And then a few years later, he'd try again. So we tell the story of how things kind of happened in the modern era, and it began with Miss Universe, the pageant that he owned at the time, and he brought it to uh, Moscow in 2013, and he really saw it as a stepping stone to a bigger, better deal in Russia. He was teaming up with an oligarch named Eris Agrilarov, whose son Emin was a pop star, well, not even star, a pop singer, of, let's say moderate <laughs> reputation, moderate talent, <clears throat> And um, 
they were all excited about getting this contest there. And from the moment it began, he started started sending these sending out these fawning tweets about Vladimir Putin. Will he be my BFF now? This is a guy whose regime has already set the atmosphere for the killing of dissidents and journalists, whose government had just passed a law that would send people to jail if they talked positively about gay rights or homosexuality. And here is Trump saying, he's my best friend, and for the, oh, well, he wants him to be. And for the months leading up to Miss Universe in 2013, in the fall of 2013, and when he's there, he you know, keeps putting out these positive remarks about Putin. It's clear that he has some psychological identification with him. Strong man, envy, he wants to be an oligarch, but also he's a businessman, and he knows for damn sure that if he gets out there and says critical things about Putin, he's not going to be able to build a tower in Moscow. So it's, you know, he's basically sucking up to Putin to get what he wants. And when he's in Moscow for the Miss Universe contest, as Mike and I talk about in the first chapter of the book, he is obsessive about meeting Putin. He keeps asking everybody around him, is Putin coming to, you know, to, to the Miss Universe contest? Will I have a meeting with him? Because they say that you know, when he gets there, he's told that Putin wants to meet him. And that's all he can think about. Eventually, he's told, a phone call comes in, that Putin will not be able to make it. He will not see him. And Trump, his Trumpian fashion, says to a Miss Universe organization staffer, well, you know... We can say that he came. No one would ever know that he didn't. <laughs> so, um, but out of that trip, he got a deal to build a tower. The deal fell apart in part because of sanctions. But yes, this infatuation was based, I think, on both psychological and business um, compulsions. And, and let me go on with that. That intersect. That was the other another aspect of it. And in, in tracing that history, that that just stood out. It, it was. The infatuation with wanting something in, in Russia, in Moscow, it was the admiration, yes, it felt like um, uh, regarding Putin. It, was, it also felt like, Michael, this, this – un- love is the wrong word, but, but this, this admiration, there's a better word, for the oligarchs. And it seemed almost like you know, this is retrospectively and looking at it with the lens from today. And so I, I'm curious – did you feel this? Was this what you wanted to, um, you know, me to infer, readers to infer? But almost an, an admiration for the intersection of business and government, for the way that the that, that you could become an oligarch in a system le- like what was going on in Russia. We, did did that come together? Because that was something that I took from right. from reading the tale. I mean, look, one could argue that, 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 that Putin's kleptocracy is made to order for Donald Trump. It's, it's, a, it's the kind of world and the kind of environment uh, that he feels comfortable in, uh, an environment in which there are no rules other than what the autocrat uh, uh, declares them to be. Um, and, uh, you know, you, much, you know, certainly an element of uh, Trump's uh, uh, 
sympathy, affection uh, for Putin is there's the psychological dimension of strongman to strongman, autocrat to autocrat. I like that. Uh, there was certainly the element of that certainly by uh, uh, 2014 when the Obama administration imposes sanctions on uh, on 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 Russia. Um, Trump feels uh, an affinity for Putin because he's uh, because he's become a target of Obama, who Trump has contempt for, just as Putin had contempt for Obama. And by the way, just as a parenthetical, uh, the secret source inside the Kremlin I was referring to earlier, who was warning about those cyber attacks, was also giving uh, extraordinary insights to the U.S. government about the absolute contempt that Putin and his inner circle uh, expressed towards Obama and his administration, often uh, articulated in racist terms, use yeah. of the N-word, yeah. referring to Obama as a monkey, um, you know, uh, comments like that, which gives you an insight into the thinking of uh, at the highest levels of the Kremlin. So that's an element of it, but you can't get away from what I think we concluded was probably the dominant part of uh, 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 th that shaped Trump's thinking, which was the uh, uh, determination to do business deals in Moscow and knowing that, that they can't go through without the blessing of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and, and that story, the, the, um, the hate for Obama and for Hillary Clinton um, that came yes. out it, that, that that was well we've again while we've kind of heard about that feeling that and reading it in the context of now everything that we know but everything else that you lay out it, it again it, it feels in you know with the benefit of 2020 yeah, hindsight it, it's like the, this flashing signal like whoa you know something crazy is is going on here um, David, let me get let's get to the the frustration portion, and and I'm sure you guys felt it too. Um, throughout the campaign, you, you know, there are the signals, and there are the signals within the Obama administration, and there are the signals outside of that that we're all seeing. We're seeing Manafort. We hear you know Newland, we uh, um, uh, ambassador from the State Department, uh, Victoria Newland, when when she sees that uh, uh, Manafort is um, part of the uh, um, Trump campaign. What did she say? He's been a Russian stooge for years. As it was, do I have that right? That that was the for fifteen yeah. years. Yeah, for yeah. fifteen years. So so, and yet, it, while while we hear about it, we know about it. Hillary Clinton brings it up in the debate. Where where it never fully coalesces. So so one and and this is too broad of a question because you guys outline the myriad reasons why it never coalesces. But one, why do you think it never coalesced into that that biting narrative that obviously it has become since then? And then and then. Two, if I could, um, how close do you feel that either one of you came to being able to tell the story? Were you trying to do it? I mean, we had Michael's piece, I guess, in September of uh, 2016 uh, on Carter Page. David, you wrote the piece um, after you met with Glenn Simpson. So one, why do you think the story did not really capture the attention during the campaign? And then two, how close do you feel like either one of you came to being able to tell the story? That's a great question. I hadn't thought about it too much. One reason, I, I, I do think there was a failure on the media's part. We don't, you know, this is not a big part of the book in terms of our critiquing of, of anybody. But I think in retrospect, it's fair to say 
that this great story, the one perhaps one of the most important political stories in American history, got short shrift during the election itself when it was most important, and when a lot of elements actually were public. Uh, I think there are probably a bunch of different reasons. I think one reason is that the story became highly politicized uh, very early on. Uh, immediately, when there was word that the Russians had hacked the DNC, the, the Democratic National Committee, the Trump campaign response was literally, this is a Democratic hoax. They are making this up. They hacked themselves. Now, this was five days after the infamous Trump Tower meeting in which a Russian emissary was supposed to bring dirt on Hillary to Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and Don Trump Jr. They didn't get what they wanted, but they were told the Russians were secretly trying to help them, the Russian government. Yet they were out there saying, no, there can be no Russian involvement here. And it kind of became an issue where the Clinton campaign was asserting this, the Trump campaign was asserting it wasn't happening, and the political journalists covering it sort of as a he said, she said type of situation. And when, you know, I, I feel some sympathy only in this regard for people on the Clinton campaign and that they were trying to get this story out and say, look at what's happening. Look at the evidence. It, it seems that this is unprecedented attack is underway. And yet political journalists saw that as spin, as them trying to deflect from the content of first the DNC emails that are released in July and later the, uh, the John, uh, uh, Podesta emails that are released in October. So it was all seen through a political lens. And at the same time, the White House was playing it rather cool. They thought if they made too big a deal out of this, it might, A, help the Russians create dis dis uh, discord in the election, and um, B, be seen as politicizing the issue, and people wouldn't believe them. So they, want, they, you know, they put out a statement in early October. I think it was way too late, and they expected it to speak for itself, but people paid more attention to, guess what? They grabbed them by the pussy tape, and the Podesta emails that then came out. Um, if I could just take a quick uh, crack at this, because I'm told we, we actually have to, have to run. Uh, but um, uh, look, um, uh, I think we both were among the reporters who were uh, aggressively uh, uh, pursuing the Trump-Russia uh, connections during the campaign. Uh, and we each advance the ball in our own ways. But I don't think either us or anybody else in the media really had the full picture. Uh, there was a lot we didn't know about. Nobody knew about George Papadopoulos and his contacts in, uh, in London who were connected to the Kremlin. Uh, nobody knew about the Trump Tower meeting. Um, there, was, there was a lot that has unfolded over the past year that brought the, uh, the story into that gave the story much greater clarity and that's what we've tried to do in the book sort of take all the threads that were out there and weave them together into a single narrative and um, I think at least as far as where the story is as of today uh, we've uh, we've done a pretty good job of it yeah you you, you certainly have and I, I know you've got to go the one bit of news of the last two days I guess and curious if you have a point of view on it and and then um, you'll go please 
Um, the, uh, the memo put up by the House Intelligence Committee Democrats that in testimony they've learned that Trump tried to do business with a, quote, sanctioned Russian bank during the campaign. Does, does that advance the story? That seems to go beyond the Felix Sater reporting in your book, I believe. Uh, are you guys – I believe you're referring to the, to, to, to the Steele dossier references to Carter Page's uh, uh, trip to Moscow in July of 2016 and uh, the meetings he may or may not have had there. Um, uh, we've learned some, you know, Carter Page, I was the first to report on that, Carter Page denied it at the time, uh, since it's come out that while he didn't meet with the particular individual mentioned the Steele dossier, he met with a deputy, the head of investor relations of that company, Rosneft, which is the Russian-owned, uh, uh, government-owned uh, uh, energy company. There is a lot more to the story that we have not yet been able to uh, 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 to put together, and um, we, will, uh, we will both be staying on. Michael, David, thank you both. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll look forward to the sequel and the continued reporting. Thank you both. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was my conversation with Michael Isikoff and David Korn. As you can tell, they've done a great service and put together an incredible narrative that goes a long way to helping us understand how in the world we got here. My thanks to both of them for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. 